In this episode of the Brawn Body Podcast, I'm joined by Nikki D'Antoni, and we're going to be discussing weight management, how to keep yourself at a healthy weight level through healthy lifestyle habits, as opposed to self-destructive and unhealthy habits. Nikki is actually a health coach who helps people do this for a living. So at this point in life, she's helped hundreds, thousands of people keep their weight at a healthy level through holistic lifestyle interventions, healthy eating, proper exercise. It's a great process, and I highly recommend you check out her website and the resources that she has on it. I'm linking to them below in the description. Before we get to the show today, I'm going to turn it over to one of our sponsors for a quick word. Nikki, welcome to the show. Excited to have you on today. Thank you so much, Dan. It's great to be here. So for those who don't know you or aren't familiar with you, would you mind sharing a little bit about who you are and what you do? Thank you so much. Well, I, I'm an entrepreneur that owns a spa, and I also have a coaching business working primarily with people who want to maintain their weight. That's an awesome kind of business and area to work in, Nikki. You're surrounded by people who need help and you spend your life helping others. Now, I'm curious, how do you kind of keep yourself fulfilled or is that kind of a self-fulfilling business practice, I guess I'll say, Uh, because we know that helping others can be taxing. So what do you do to make sure that you yourself are constantly in a positive state and positive mindset? a really good question and it's something that i i have to tackle periodically um as a brick and mortar business owner and as someone with a with a growing business in the digital space my management and self-care become priorities and i do consume a lot of information i listen to podcasts and i do a lot of reading to sort of support me in my own mindset and i think that my own workouts and emphasis on healthy lifestyle have helped me continue to produce at a high level with, with high energy overall, but periodically, like everybody else, I really need a break and right. take one. Right. That makes perfect sense. So what brought you into this field of helping other people, especially when it comes to topics such as weight management? Well, I had my own struggles all my life with my weight and with an eating disorder. So When I was interested in moving more into this arena, I got my health coaching certification. I had been an occupational therapist working in healthcare for 17 years before I became uh, a business owner outside of that space. And I added the health coaching credential primarily because I felt as if I had something to share with people who were struggling with their weight. I had in um, high school, I was a normal weight. And then when I went to college, I gained a little bit of weight and yo-yoed trying to take it off. And it wasn't until after college that I actually developed anorexia nervosa. But at the time, I would say, uh, and it caught me for five years. And at the time, I never thought, well, this will be something I'll be able to help other people with. It's just that since I've recovered and that being more than 25 years ago or more than 20 years ago at this point, I realized that I do have some insights into how people struggling with that can find their way out of the trap, as well as having maintained a weight and never having regained the amount that I originally weighed. 
I can help people who are trying to lose weight recognize that weight maintenance is really where the rubber meets the road. You know, you can lose weight, diets work. It's not super hard to lose weight. The problem that we all face is maintaining that weight loss. That's why people yo-yo. And I've really enjoyed helping clients recognize how they, what they'll need to put in place to maintain weight. Right. That makes a lot of sense. So starting with the topic of yo-yo dieting there, you mentioned that, you mentioned anorexia, you mentioned weight maintenance. With yo-yo dieting, you said the reason you think it's so common is because people struggle to maintain their weight. So they kind of see the number on the scale go up a little bit, and then they start to diet, cut back a little bit. They see the number go down, maybe it goes down a little too much. So they start eating more and it's just a constant cycle back and forth. Or is there other factors that might contribute to why someone would kind of yo-yo in their eating approach? Let me dive into that. I think there are four cornerstones for weight management over the long term. And one is certainly having a sustainable plan. Unfortunately, most people choose a diet that they're not going to be able to stay on. It's either too restrictive or it doesn't include any of things that they really want to eat. And whenever I'm working with a client, the first thing I ask them is, what do you like to eat? Whatever program that you use to lose weight is going to be the one that works to keep your weight off. It's just that you've got to be able to make it sustainable and incorporate the things that you enjoy or make sure that it's not so restrictive that you're ending up losing too much weight and unable to maintain weight on that diet. So a sustainable plan and then having the appropriate psychological mindset, understanding that there are specific habits that need to be put, you know, put into place, including self-monitoring and uh, monitoring of your food intake. That's going to be specifically important for maintaining weight. You need to know where you're starting in terms of how many calories you're taking in and in terms of how many calories you can take in and need to take in to maintain weight as opposed to gain it. So there's an element of self-monitoring. Even though you have a sustainable plan, you still have to be sort of conscious of that. And then there's physical activity. This is another cornerstone or aspect of weight maintenance. It doesn't come as a surprise. It's just that I probably see many people doing a lot of cardio that's not as productive as they think it is. And I always counsel clients towards adding resistance training. And then the fourth cornerstone would be an emotionally supportive environment, one in which a person has a coach or has a plan to reach out for support when they need it to stay on track, regardless of whether they're recovering from an eating disorder or they're in the process of losing weight and trying to maintain it. Either way, it helps to have some kind of accountability on a regular basis, as well as support on a regular basis. So those are the kinds of things that I feel contribute to being able to maintain weight. Yo-yo dieting can result from not recognizing the need for a sustainable plan. So a person kind of gets cravings for something that they've been denying themselves and they go and binge on it or have a cheat day and the cheat day adds up and they say, oh, hell with it. And they eat whatever they want for a few days and then they are kind of up or they aren't monitoring themselves on the scale so that they don't realize they've gained a few pounds. And when they do, perhaps in that moment, in that context, they're not able to really effectively get it off and they gain a few more. So they end up, and I'm not talking about a range of a couple of pounds. I, I always tell clients, choose a range of two or three pounds that with a daily weigh-in, you're going to be somewhere within that range. I'm talking about people who might have 
lost 10% of their body weight or, you know, more than 10 pounds and they're finding themselves having swings back up and down the scale with it that are not what they want to see. And they're feeling unable to maintain a weight, a, a tighter weight range. And I think that cravings and binging cheat days, they're all kinds of subclinical eating issues that people present with that wouldn't necessarily qualify for qualify someone as having an eating disorder, but there's disordered eating everywhere, as far as I can tell. No, that makes a lot of sense there, Nikki. And you touched on so many great things. And I'm going to try and summarize them and recap them one by one here. So first, you talked about sustainable dieting. And that's the name of the game, I think. I like Dr. Chris Kresser's approach. He calls it functional uh, medicine or functional lifestyle, right? Whatever food you're putting in your body has to be functional for you. So you have to make sure you're hitting all the necessary micro and macronutrients. Obviously, if you're deficient in protein or a certain vitamin or mineral or something like that, you're not going to function at your best. But there's no one right way to do that. Everyone's path to get there looks a little bit different. So for me, I know that I function best on a modified paleo diet. I eat a lot of meat and I take in a few servings of vegetables and fruits every day, but my focus is more on fats and proteins. And I'm alive, awake, and energetic with that approach. But that's not going to work for everyone. Some people might do better on a plant-based approach. Mm, that's totally fine. Whatever works for you. And when it comes to nutrition, there's a little bit of self-experimentation that needs to take place to find what works for you. You also just mentioned a little bit on the weight fluctuation, how it's okay to have that window of like three pounds and just say, Hey, you know, it might be a couple pounds higher this day. It might be a couple pounds lower, but as long as you're within that window, then life is good for the most part. Right? Well, one thing I like to bring up to people too, is the time that you get on the scale matters so much because if I forget to weigh myself that morning and I weigh myself right after dinner, that number is going to be higher than when I just got out of bed that morning. That's just kind of natural, right? I spent the whole day eating and doing stuff and, you know, drinking water, all those things bump that number on the scale up. So just keep in the back of your mind that the number on the scale is not always telling the full story because there's other factors like, you know, if you just ate a 16 ounce steak for dinner, that will impact the number you see on the scale. You also talked about resistance training over cardio. We actually did a whole episode on that in the past with Sal Stefano called the resistance training revolution. If you're listening and you haven't heard that episode yet, highly recommend you go back and hear it because Sal really breaks down the science of resistance training in that episode and why resistance training is superior for weight management to cardio. It has to do with increasing your basal metabolic rate and the amount of calories that you burn without actually doing anything. And last, you hit on emotionally supportive environments, which that is the name of the game in today's day and age. We live in a stressful time, right? A lot of people are fearful because of things like the pandemic. A lot of people have had their lives you know, drastically altered over the course of the past year to 18 months, and things are different. Mental health is a huge problem in this country right now. 
and it's not being addressed. We just did the episode. We're recording this in November, uh, and we just did an episode a couple of weeks ago with Tony Miller, where we were talking about everything that his group, the American Heroes Foundation, is doing to support veterans, first responders, and their families right now. And the stats that he was sharing in that episode are just alarming how troubling, you know, a specific group of people like veterans and first responders, how much they're struggling with suicide, depression, PTSD, and no one is there to help them. When it comes to weight management, that struggle is there just the same. People have the temptation to go back down into destructive habits. And one of the things that I use with my clients to help them stay accountable is a kind of system approach where we pair them with either myself or someone else and keep each other accountable. So this comes from, I got this idea from a study published in 2015. It comes from Gail Matthews from the Dominican University. This study looked at 149 participants. They had five groups. Group one thought about their goals. Group two wrote their goals down. Group three wrote their goals down and they wrote a couple steps to get there. Group four wrote down their goals, made steps to get there, and then sent it to a friend. Group five wrote their goals down, made some steps to get there, sent it to a friend, and had that friend do a weekly report with them. So there was a progress check every single week. And they found that the fifth group, the one that had that friend in the weekly check-in, was 77% more effective than the first group at achieving their goals. So just write them down, build some steps, have a friend keep you accountable every week. It's as simple as that. We use that approach when we're training people, our clients, but you can use that same approach for weight management. If you know that you are struggling, the worst thing that you can do is keep it in and keep it to yourself. Get help where you can, get help where you need. And that's where people like you and everything that you're doing with your business are perfect because people need people like you right now. I just want to comment on a few things you said. Um, the sustainability aspect of, and it being an individualized approach to developing a diet, that's absolutely true. I completely agree. I couldn't agree more. And people kind of need to find out what works for them. And that's going to be the basis for their ongoing plan. They need to be able to see themselves eating that same way five years from that day. Uh, and the other thing about weigh-ins, um, I weigh myself daily and I try to train my clients to do the same. And I always say, get up in the morning and in nothing but your underwear, get on the scale and don't attach a lot of feelings to it, but log it down and keep track of it. And at the end of the month, what you'll see is that if you're staying on plan, even though you may fluctuate slightly because of how much you, you know, your stool, stool output or fluid output, fluid intake, everything makes a difference. And the body is not going to be calibrated like a machine every single day. So there's no, there should be no judgment whether you go up or down half a pound or a pound, as long as you're staying in your range. Even if you don't, periodically you're going to have a weird weigh-in. And people who weigh themselves every day can attest to this. I'm one of them. Sometimes there really will be no apparent reason that you are just a little bit higher outside your range or a little bit lower. It just happened to work that way that day. But if you stay on plan by the beginning of the following week or by the end of the month, you've averaged out to be the same as the month before. Really, um, it's, it's a really instructive lesson. And I think it actually 
helps people feel more empowered in relation to the scale. The longer they don't get on it, the more mystery and the more upsetting it is when they do. The more frequently you get on it, then the easier it is to regard it as a tool that's just providing objective feedback. And that's really all it is. And you realize how in control, how much impact you can make on your weight. Great points, Nikki. Now, originally we started talking about the yo-yo dieting and yo-yo, yo-yo approach with weight. You also brought up anorexia. And this is a topic that as someone who's currently in college, I've seen a lot of people particularly young females struggle with anorexia. They seem to want to lose weight and they have a huge fear of gaining any weight and anorexia is the condition that results from that. So can you kind of break down for us what would kind of impact someone to become anorexic in their eating habits and how someone could break that terrible cycle? First of all, no one cause of anorexia nervosa has been isolated at this point. There's plenty of research being done, but really what we can say is that there are contributors to development of the disease. One of the things to consider is that certain personality traits may make someone more vulnerable. And those personality traits include being perfectionistic, um, being agreeable and having a high degree of desire to please somebody and therefore repressing or suppressing your own negative feelings or emotions, being very conscientious, attention to detail, maybe having low self-esteem or not a lot of things to build your self-esteem around that are unrelated to your appearance. Uh, The social milieu that one finds themselves in, uh, there's a lot of value placed on appearance as opposed to other types of achievements, that can be um, a vulnerability. And certain athletic disciplines such as running, gymnastics, cheerleading, ballet, they tend to also place a high level of value on being lean or thin and maintaining certain weight. This also is a disease that goes hand in hand with having some depression or anxiety or elements of compulsion and rigidity. So there are certain factors that are actually very individual that can influence somebody's vulnerability to the disease. The actual cause or trigger, no one again has been able to isolate just one, for example, but there are certain things that are being looked at and one is genetics. There are certain genes that seem to, genetic uh, variations that seem to predispose people to development of anorexia or bulimia. Uh, There are also differences in brain chemistry, neurotransmitters, serotonin and dopamine play a part in how people respond to hunger and to satiety signals. And some of that may play a role. I don't know that much about that, but that's something that's still being elucidated. And there are plenty of external triggers or pressures. This can be something that is induced by family issues and stress or perhaps a fear of autonomy that sort of skews younger when you're developing it when you're a teenager, fear of autonomy, fear of growing up. That's kind of a theory. And then if you are older, like I was, maybe it's the need for boundaries and autonomy that drives you into uh, being rigid like that. Uh, Social comparison, we've heard a lot about the influence of social media 
and TikTok slash Instagram, these types of accounts that kind of are proponents of rigid and restrictive diets and social comparison, comparing one's appearance to other others and to vision, um, visual imagery and athletic competition and pressures. All of these things can kind of create an atmosphere that would be more inductive of an eating disorder actually emerging. Now you broke that up very well. You hit a lot of different bullets. I like how you started with the personality traits and then you started to kind of take it from an internal focus, what people experience, personality traits, self-esteem to an external focus, such as the sports that they play or the things that they experience as a result of their environment. You mentioned dopamine. There's actually a recent paper that was published on the role of dopamine in uh, the patho pathophysiology of anorexia. It's by uh, Virginia Berry, uh, for those who want to look it up. Um, essentially, they kind of said, to your point, that dopamine is playing some kind of role in anorexia, and they proposed two or three different mechanisms, such as hypersensitivity or a increase in synthesis. Now, you brought up social media, and it's interesting that you brought that up, one, just because of what we know about it, but two, people are literally addicted to social media, and social media ties right in with dopamine. Dopamine is our reward hormone, our pleasure hormone. What gives you more of a hit of dopamine than going on Instagram and getting new likes, new comments, new followers, right? Everything in our modern society is instantaneous anymore. Anything you want, you can get it instantly. You can go online and get things instantly. You can go online and order a pizza and get it delivered to yourself within, you know, 10, 15 minutes without ever leaving your house. We live in a world of instant gratification. BRB is no more. So when we see these things, whether it be physical appearance or just a certain body type or body figure constantly, we want those and we want them fast. We want them quick. We want them overnight. So my personal thought is it would almost be like people just because we live in a world where things are given instant are willing to do whatever it takes to get to that point as quickly as possible, as instantly as they can, even if that means not eating, even if that means harming themselves along the process. And one that says volumes about society, but two, to me as a health coach and trainer, it makes me realize that people don't understand the value of delayed gratification. Fitness and weight management, if done correctly, is the last thing that we have, one of the last things that we have that embodies delayed gratification. To do it correctly, properly, and healthily if that's a word healthfully, uh, we might have to add that one to the dictionary. You can't expect results overnight. It takes months or years to get to where you want to be. And even when you get there, you might not be fully satisfied, right? How many people have, you know, we'll call it body dysmorphia, when even though they're fit and active and healthy, they look in the mirror and they're still not happy. They're not where they want to be, right? So it's a process that takes so much time. It's long, it's slow, it's drawn out, but it's intentional. It's good that it's like that because you can fall in love 
with the process of bettering yourself 1% day by day. And that's something that I feel like we as again, as health coaches, health trainers, whatever term you want to say, need to emphasize more because everything in our society just goes straight against delayed gratification. I agree with everything you said, but I want to step back for a moment and mention that development of anorexia is not only about appearance. That can be, again, a trigger. Right. But, but the function of the illness and the result of it is a disconnection, not only a disconnection from, say, things as physical and tangible as hunger cues or satiety cues uh, and your own body, but it typically serves a purpose. And the purpose is somehow you are distracting yourself or um, alleviating a distress. This might be if someone has things going on at home that feel they feel out of control of or very disturbing. It can also be disconnection in terms of setting up boundaries, validating and finding oneself. If a person is an empath or has had problems in their family of origin, being able to differentiate and kind of be themselves, this may be the function of the illness. It's a way of asserting self-control and achieving some type of sense of accomplishment, at least early on with the first first phase of weight loss or seeing that your body changes, you do feel a sense of accomplishment. There are these things that the disease is doing for the person. So even though they may have been, it may have been triggered by something, you don't get stuck in that unless there's another reason. And it, it's typically, and it's easy. It's easy to think that it's all about appearance. And that certainly if you talk to an anorexic, there's no insight. You're not going to have a conversation about why there, that's not really something that's able to be processed. There isn't a lot of insight there. It, it will sound like it's all about, I just don't want to be fat. And I just want to look like X, Y, Z. That's really what is conscious. But there's this unconscious function of the disease and going down that path. And again, touching on what we talked about before, there may be many women that you see and men as well who are exhibiting signs of disordered eating and body dysmorphia. Not all of them will be diagnosed with anorexia. When you are diagnosed, there are certain criteria and your weight is you know, somewhat dangerously low or going there. And a lot of people will have anorexia without it being visibly obvious. It's typical. You don't, you know, you're not, most of them start, start out at a normal weight or are overweight. Most of us that, that had it began to lose weight and exhibit anorexic behaviors and mindset well before anybody noticed because you don't notice until the person's too thin. Most anorexics are not actually going to initially present when they're at death's door. It's something that is a gradual process. I just wanted to mention that um, in terms of it being all about delayed gratification, anorexics are typically good at that, um, but you're right. There's a certain element of disillusionment about what you're going to achieve that necessarily occurs for sure, because what you think you're going to get by losing weight is not what you get. I'm glad you brought that up. That made me think about the whole concept of just using food as a reward system or punishment system. That's something that to me anyways, is 
a little bit outdated and something that I think we need to shift away from. So for example, you should not, in my opinion, uh, and again, this is not necessarily where I've spent my majority of my time researching things, but in my opinion, you should not withhold food from someone because they didn't perform as expected, whether that be, you know, in a athletic event or a academic event or whatever. And you yourself should not withhold food from yourself uh, for not performing well. If you're going to go down the road of punishment, um, which there's debate on if that's even effective in itself, there's other avenues that you could go down other than food. And it really bothers me to think that people think that taking away someone else's basic, you know, nutrient intake is a effective and fair means of punishment. Um, and maybe this is getting a little too dark at this no, point, but it's, let me make, it's the let truth. Let me make it clear. It would be a family that didn't understand, for example, mm -hmm. or people who, who might invite someone who they felt had an eating disorder to join them, but then, you know, not make the food that they would, that the person wants to eat accessible. So make the food that the person will eat accessible. It just gives them a chance. Right. Yeah. I don't think I, I haven't heard of, I have heard of uh, treatment programs where inpatient or hospitalized anorexics are, you know, were kind of prevented from family contact until they'd eaten or they didn't get to make phone calls if they weren't a certain weight, that type of thing. That That's inappropriate. And I think that in contemporary treatment models, that is considered inappropriate. It's good to see there's a little bit of a paradigm shift there. Yeah, they uh, don't do that anymore. <laughs> now, speaking about paradigm shift, so we've talked at length about some of the different causes of anorexia and what goes on in the disease from a pathophysiological standpoint how can people start to recover from it? Should they seek out a recovery program or support group right away? Or what would the path, um, obviously everyone's path to recovery is going to look different because no two people have the same situation, but what general steps should someone walk down? What's kind of the general process to recovery from anorexia? One thing I want to say is that this is a mental illness and the people suffering from it do not want help usually. The, the, the key thing to recognize is that an anorexic is not going to present for therapy usually. Um, this is the kind of thing where, at least initially, the disorder and the the person's the person suffering from the disorder it doesn't have the capacity to really understand that 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 it's a disorder um i mean i can kind of give you an example of what it's like to be in that mindset and then i can tell you that yes i strongly encourage anybody who is having disordered eating to seek out a coach either a recovery coach or an actual therapist to work with to get a nutrition consult, to start to talk to people about the fact that they are wanting to starve themselves or they feel so bad about their bodies that they believe that 
they shouldn't eat or they're afraid they're looking fat, you know, even though they're underweight. Those kinds of things, if they can find a few people to confide in and those people can help lead them to professionals that can help them, that would be ideal. But the reality, the unfortunate reality is that at least for some anorexics, it's the eating disorder can take over your mind and take over your behavior to the extent that you aren't really able to do that very, very easily on your own, not without support. Um, there's a lack of recognition. I mean, one of the aspects of the disease diagnosis is a lack of recognition of the danger that you're in due to having a low weight. And you have such disturbance, mental disturbance in the experience of your body and your weight that you, you feel totally unworthy of anyone caring about you or of caring about yourself because of your weight, even though your weight is so low. Um, and there's an intense fear of gaining weight or becoming fat. And therefore, going into treatment is really difficult when you're an anorexic. But I can, I can talk a little bit about an experience that might give some insight into the mental state at the time. Yeah, definitely. Uh, there was an, and I was in graduate school at the time. It started before graduate school, but I was in graduate school at the height of my eating disorder. And I remember going for a hike with my parents and my boyfriend at the time. And I had not eaten in the morning. And I knew that we would be going to have dinner after the hike. And I, my dad suggested Italian or something like that. And I immediately started to panic because I knew I would never be able to find something that I'd be comfortable with on the menu. And I heard my mother quietly say to him, why don't we pick a place where Nikki might be able to find something to eat? And that was great. And I was looking forward to it. And I thought, okay, if we go to a diner, I know I can order egg whites. That'll be safe. I'll be able to have something with the family tonight. And we did go to a diner. And as I was looking around, I started thinking, what if they don't follow my instructions and they use oil to scramble the egg whites? Then I will not be able to eat them. And I'll look crazy. My parents will be upset and I, you know, I won't be able to eat and it'll be a horrible, horrible situation because I, and I'm bringing this up because I think people don't recognize that there's actually an intense terror when you're presented with food that you don't want to eat. It's, it's actually like existential petrified fear. You just can't do it. I thought to myself, okay, I won't take a chance and order egg whites. I'll order something that I know will be safe. And even though it was dinner time, I ordered cantaloupe with cottage cheese. And nobody said anything. That was fine. I was ordering what I was comfortable with, and that was acceptable to my family. And uh, when they brought it, everyone had their food. And I looked down at the cottage cheese. I could see that it was large curd cottage cheese. And the only large curd cottage cheese I'd ever seen, it was 4% milk fat. And I was not in any way going to ever allow myself to eat that cottage cheese. I could only eat non-fat or 1% fat cottage cheese. And the terror was upon me in that moment. And so not only am I sitting there freaking out because of the food that's in front of me being different than what I had thought it would be and, and showing up in a potentially in a um, format that I wouldn't accept. Now I'm upset that I'm going to, I don't want to upset my parents. I don't want anyone to know the level of conflict that's going on in my head. And I'm trying to calculate the calories and how I can possibly eat the cantaloupe without touching the cottage cheese. 
And that's how nuts it is. I just want you to have that understanding. And I, I sat there and I used my spoon to move the cottage cheese out of the way and eat the cantaloupe, eat all around the cottage cheese, try to avoid the cottage cheese because I was sitting there saying to myself, well, it's, four, it's probably 4% cottage cheese and I can't have that. I can only have it if it's 1%. And how many calories do we think this is? How big is this cantaloupe? How big is the cottage? I mean, and all, the whole time trying not to cry and look crazy to my parents. And I was, you know, in this, I was a master's degree student at the time. One would think that I could think my way out of that or I could avoid being pulled into that trap. But when the eating disorder has control of you, it truly does change the way that you can respond to things and will respond to things. And can you, can't, you cannot just eat it. The level of pain involved and the level of fear involved is significant. And I, I think that that's something that's hard for others to understand or recognize you know, you don't typically have that kind of reaction to things, but that's what it is. And that's something that you end up harboring. Like you said, you didn't want to project that onto anyone else. And when you harbor things, it's kind of like a tree. That's my analogy. It grows roots and over time it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And then when it crashes down, it's loud, it's noisy, and it's not anything like you want it to be. That's, like you said, difficult for other people to relate to if they've not experienced that themselves. But I also like how you brought up that it's kind of a response that we get when we get food in front of us that we don't want to eat. I think we can all think of a time or two when we've been to someone's house or at a party or out to eat and someone puts food down in front of us and we just look at it like, really? You, you want me to eat that? Um, there was a time I was at someone's house for a cookout and I was given a salmon head and I had the little eye staring right back at me. Uh, now that got a, that gave me a response of, oh my gosh, am I really going to eat this? Like skin on the eyes there. Like it was, it was not what I was expecting when I heard that we were going to be having salmon. Um, and that's, you know, for me, an experience that I can somewhat relate to, but that still doesn't come close to what you described. And that's the kind of thing that is so difficult for people to share. And I and our listeners really appreciate you being so open and willing to share that kind of experience, because that's what so many people are going through. And they feel like they have no one to connect to. And hearing a story like that, how someone else has lived through a similar experience and beat it back, they came out stronger because of it. That's the kind of thing that we need to do a better job of spotlighting as a society in general. Thank you. I, um, I agree. I mean, I feel like having an understanding that the person is actually going through something that's terrifying to them and that they're not in control of, they're not refusing. If it, most folks would like to be able to eat differently at a certain point, but they find themselves unable to. And it's very hard for the anorexic person to articulate why they're doing what they're doing. The only thing they can say is that they're terrified of becoming fat. There really is very little capacity to look within and figure out 
what is the real function of my illness? Why am I doing this? Or why do I need to do this? And how can I give it up? And I think it was years before I could look back and say, you know what? It was about setting boundaries and finally defining myself apart from my family. And thank God they never put me in the hospital or tried to force me into treatment. Everything that I accomplished was outpatient and self-driven, and it was on my own terms, and it was when I was ready to do it. And that is a key issue. Families and friends need to recognize that the person has to be personally ready to be in recovery. They have to be personally prepared to do what it takes to start to recover. And you asked me a little bit about how people can begin that process. And for me, it was finally moving away from my family that helped me begin that process. It's not something that I knew was going to be beneficial, but once I did it, it was helpful. And I did do therapy. I did therapy while I still lived in New York, and I did it once I'd moved away. It was helpful, but it wasn't the only thing that helped. I think that I also had nutrition consults, and I was highly non-compliant with anything that might make me gain weight. The nutrition consultation was, it was not a waste, but it was certainly not, I, I didn't utilize any of the information because I didn't want to gain weight. Um, I would say that at my lowest weight, the medical doctor that was following me finally looked at me and said, what will you eat? And when I told her, she said, okay, here's what you're going to eat every day. And she wrote it down on a piece of paper and she gave me the time I was going to eat and what I was going to eat. And she basically was giving me a maintenance diet. There was no way I'd gain weight on what she gave me. But what she did allowed me something to hang on to that I knew I wouldn't gain weight. But you know what? There would be enough nutrients going in that I wasn't going to continue to lose weight. And that probably... I think the main point I'm trying to make is that maintenance is an option mm-hmm. and it should be it should be something that's made apparent to families and friends and well as well as the person who's suffering that recovery doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have to gain all your weight back or that you are mandated to gain a certain amount of weight. I think if the person who is suffering can decide here's the weight I can handle I can accept. And they focus on just maintaining that. That opens the door to recovery. Maintenance is an answer. Right. And that was something you talked about at the start as well, is weight maintaining. And that's something that is an art. People struggle with it. And I know that's one of the big things that you help people with at your uh, business there. So... Let me also answer another question you had, which was what can people do? And I want to suggest that the people around the person not um, make certain mistakes. Don't comment on their body. Don't use adjectives because there's an anorexic filter. You might say, oh, you look healthy today. Trust me, they're going to think that means they look fat. You know, try not to use adjectives. Focus on something else about them. They have a nice outfit. Their hair looks nice or change the topic entirely. It's not about appearance and focus on what they're doing or how well they're doing in some other area of life, if, if possible. Um, I would say 
reporting novel experiences, trying to get a person with anorexia or a child or a teen with an eating disorder to focus on developing their sense of self, trying new experiences and activities that don't revolve around food, both from a perspective of developing their interests, but also allowing them to experience themselves in a novel way, perhaps takes their attention off the eating disorder for a period of time, and they can experience a flow state or a state of activation or actualization of other, other, it has a neurobiological effect. It also has a more engaging psychological effect. These things can help improve self-esteem, which tends to be low. So whether you take them on a bird watching walk, or you go do an art class, or you do some type of other activity that has nothing to do with um, weight or appearance, that would be a, a lovely idea. I also feel like if if there's the opportunity to exercise and they want to do that, you know, if the, if the anorexic is trying to do exercise, get them into weightlifting if possible. It's, it's very grounding and it, it can be a useful jumping off point to start to help them feel stronger. And it encourages them to eat more protein and, you know, continue striving to improve, improve their fitness from that perspective. Um, that was helpful for me. I would say that weightlifting was a way that I found was a, a form of exercise I found beneficial to me mentally. No, that's a great piece of advice, Nikki. Thank you for sharing that. When we talk about weight maintenance, how should people go about looking for ways to maintain weight or how should, how can people maintain their weight without increasing it, decreasing it? How can they keep it in that three pound window that you talked about at the start of the episode? How can someone, regardless of who they are, find that maintenance spot and then keep themselves there? Well, you have to know what you weigh. And there are a lot of people who want to be able to do this without getting on a scale. And it's, that's, not going to work. You're going to need to know what you weigh and you're going to need to know how much you're eating and recognizing that the vast majority of people underestimate their food intake. I, I always recommend all my clients keep a food log and I have them do not, not weighing their food constantly, but at least a week weigh and measure what you're eating. Just so you have an idea, because I guarantee you, even, even people who are practiced at weight maintenance, like myself, I'm, you know, I can be eating a lot more than I think I'm eating if I'm not weighing it out or measuring it out. But once I get educated about it and I can see it, then I can know and I can sort of dial in the calories because, you know, you have to know how many calories. And I recognize that there, there are a lot of different theories out there and, you know, you have your calories in, calories out versus carbohydrate insulin model debates going on right now. But the, the basis for this is going to be energy intake matters. We want high quality energy intake. We want to avoid processed food and sugar for sure, but it's still going to come down to how many calories you're eating and how many calories you're burning. Now, it, it is, that is a basic law. And essentially I have clients start there. We need to spend a week or two dialing in what you're eating now and how much of it, how many calories you're taking in and what your weight is doing. Once we know that, we, we need to track it for a week or two we can start educating you about proper weights and measures, like getting a real handle on what you're actually doing. Because 
people who say that they're not losing weight on a thousand calories a day, they're most likely eating 1500 or 1800 and they don't realize it. Um, or if they, and, and if we find out that they truly are, well, then there might be something underlying. Let's check thyroid. Let's check other labs. Let's find out if there's any other reason why you really are not successful when you are doing everything you can. Um, so I really, first we dial in exactly what you really do need to do to maintain weight and pick a range that is comfortable for you that you're going to target as the maintenance range, figure out how many calories you can eat and stay there. And I like to have people eating as much as they can and stay within their range. I don't, there's no reason to try to eat as little as possible. Let's try to eat as much as we can and stay in that range. Um, And, and I think the other aspect is, again, this needs to be a sustainable diet. I, you know, I happen to be sugar-free, but if the, but when the holidays come around, I bake myself my own alternative sweetener goodies. I wouldn't really have as enjoyable a time, nor would I be able to maintain my weight if I were, you know, not if I didn't have those things available. So exploring different recipes and new ways of eating with those clients. And it, that may take two to four weeks to set all of that up and get this really hammered down. And then it's off to the races. They will, they'll be successful. A lot of the things that you just mentioned, I believe are available as resources on your website. I think you have some different recipes and that sort of thing up there, correct? Yes, I do. And I'm certainly happy to consult with anybody who's looking to start a maintenance program. Absolutely. And and where can people find out more about you and what you do? Well, my website is Nikki D'Antoni. That's D-A-N-T-O-N-I.com. NikkiD'Antoni.com, and they can fill out an application for coaching, or they can simply send me a contact form. Uh, There's a contact form on the website, and I'll be happy to get right back in touch with them. Awesome. We'll link to that below in the description as well. Nikki, is there anything else you want to share with those listening about topics such as eating disorders, weight management, and overall their relationship with food and weight as a whole? feel like our relationship with food is emblematic of our relationship with ourselves. It's one of the most important things we can do to nourish ourselves. And it's one of the first places we happen to see issues um, come up because we use it as a, a tool. We use it as a, it's, it certainly reflects to us how we're doing with other things in our lives that are causing us stress. So I want to encourage everybody to feel a little compassion for themselves and also to reach out for help. And I want to say thank you to you for doing this for your your listeners. Thank you for coming on, Nikki. We really appreciate your time for sharing your story with us, your experiences. Well, you made it a pleasure. You really made it a pleasure, Dan. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Brown Body Podcast. If you like this episode, please do us a huge favor and share it with a friend who you think could benefit from hearing some of the information that we shared within it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on any of our upcoming episodes and follow us on social media at Brawn Body to keep engaged and stay up to date with everything else we're doing. Last, if you're listening on iTunes, I would really appreciate it if you left a star rating and a review. Obviously, five stars is ideal, but if there's something that you think I could improve on, please feel free to reach out and let me know. Thank you, and we'll see you next week for our last episode of 2021.